like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7, and we will conclude chapter 7 today after having studied it for a number of weeks. And uh, let's begin with prayer, and then we'll read the text afterward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this portion of the service where we open your word and we look first to understand it and then we ask for your help to obey it. We will need your help for this. Our natural inclination is to run from some of these verses, to pay them no mind, or to twist them in ways they should not be used. But Lord, we ask for your help to see them as you meant for them to be seen and obeyed as you mean for them to be obeyed. So we ask that you redeem this time of ours for your ends and for your glory and for our growth. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, where we pick up today is in continuation of what's been one long conversation uh, which takes place all at the same time we began in chapter 7. But we're down to verse 40 now, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Verse 40 says, When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really the prophet? Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, It is Christ or is the Christ to come from Galilee? That's a question. Verse 42. Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Depending on the translation that you're reading from, whether that be the ESV or the NASV or the King James Version, I think that would be, those that, that would be the majority of us. Uh, the last verse of that chapter might have a footnote attached to it. And not just the last verse of chapter 7, but the first 11 verses of chapter 8. In the ESV version, it's got a, a, a bracketed statement there in all caps. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Your translation may have a different note. Some translations would not have that portion of chapter 8. You'd have to go to the back of your Bible to find it in an appendix. I mention that now just to give you a heads up for next week. 
What do we do with that? Is it part of Scripture? Or was it added later? And if it was added later, is it worth our study? Good questions. But they're for next week. So if you're interested, and I hope you are, that's a good question. I hope you'll be back next week for chapter 8. Let's finish chapter 7 this morning. And what I want to show you, if you'll look back at that portion we just read, verse 40 through 45. 40 through 44 is a, a paragraph. We've got a little indentation at verse 45 down through 52. So we've got two paragraphs in the verses that we read. And one of those paragraphs has to do with a group of people that were attending the feast and had heard what Jesus said. And the other paragraph has more to do with a group of officials, the the authorities, uh, religiously speaking, comprised of the Sanhedrin, those that are seeking to kill Jesus. That paragraph has to do with them. So we'll split it in two this morning. Paragraph having to do with the public and a paragraph having to do with the authorities. But the big idea in what we just read actually comes in verse 43. And it begins with the word so. Maybe your translation has the word therefore. There was a division among the people over him. And we've seen this division building as we've worked our way through chapter 7. But that's the big idea today. All that we're going to discuss in the next few minutes revolves around a division. People who are divided as to what they think about this man named Jesus. So there was a division and it's Jesus' fault that they're divided. Not the first time that people are going to be divided over Jesus. Certainly not the last time they're going to be divided over Jesus. Even if we include this message which divides people over Jesus, it still won't be the end of it. Until the day where every knee bows and every tongue confesses, people will continue to be divided over what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. Jesus is the cause. And there's one thing I would like to show you because I I think it will lend a bit of gravity to what we're looking at. And you don't need to turn there, but just think of it in your mind. We've been here before, almost a year ago. And I believe it was the 23rd of December, the Sunday before Christmas Eve. um, Because this year it's on a Wednesday. Yeah, it would have been the 23rd. Uh, The message that we looked at was a a lesser known portion of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is the most familiar of the Christmas story, but usually... The story as it's told and printed and uh, put to drama stops before we get to verse 34. This had to do with Simeon who took the baby Jesus and, and talked about him and blessed him and then looked right into Mary's eyes and had something to say. This would be 40 days after the, the baby Jesus had been born and they were dedicating him at the temple. But This is Luke chapter 2, verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many and for a sign that is opposed. His whole being here will come with its own amount of opposition. And then says, So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He's going to do a work on people in their heads and in their hearts. 
revealing their own motivation to themselves. He's going to perform surgery on people. And it's never comfortable. When, when people are able to see the internal motivator of their own heart, sometimes it's a very disruptive process. And then in the middle of that statement bracketed, he actually says to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And we talked about that. It was a Christmas message. To think that if Jesus was born to die, to die for the sins of the world, what does it mean to the mother of Jesus to find out that she's among the sinners for which he is suspended on a cross? That's the sword through her own soul also. Not even Mary is going to um, be released from the division, the divisive power of Christ as he pulls our consciences apart to reveal the sin he's here to take away. That is what is beginning to spin out of control in these passages. The people are divided. Some believe him, others don't. The ones who don't think he should be arrested. So not even Mary would escape the thought-revealing, soul-searching, sword of the Lord's words, Christ coming to this earth would force a decision in every heart. Either one is established by him, believes him, is built up by him, changed by him, or they trip over him, stumble over him, are offended by him, uh, absolutely repulsed by him. And there's usually no middle ground. There shouldn't be. Because the guy who says what he says has to be dealt with. You can't say what he said and be wrong. Right? Just like you don't say certain words on an airplane. Unless, of course, you're right. If you're wrong and you say that word, you're in big trouble. Right? There's certain things you just can't say. To say that I've come to this world to take away the sins of the world, that has to be true. Because you can't say that if you're wrong. So let's identify the players here in the passage, and we'll try to do like we did last, a couple of weeks ago. Who do we most look like? Where do we fit in here? Well, we'll need to know who's, who are the players and how they're involved. We'll take it apart, hopefully, to understand it, and then we'll look at how we can obey it by concluding with a, a couple or three points you can take home with you. But if you're looking there, verse 40, when they heard the words, some of the people... And then others said, it's the Christ, but some said, it's Christ to come from Galilee. So there's your players, the people, others, some saying this, some saying that. And then 43, there was a division among the people. So these could be those that live in Jerusalem, those who have traveled outside of Jerusalem for the feast. This could even involve Jesus' own family, his brothers, his mother. This is everybody, but it's not necessarily including those that are the authorities. Look at that. That's in verse 45. The officers. So that's the temple guards. They have an official capacity. Then the chief priests and Pharisees there in verse 45. And we talked about how they usually don't get along, but they do when they're united against Jesus. Chief priests, Pharisees, officers. That's three groups. And then there's this person we've met before, Nicodemus. He's given by name, but he's also one of them. He's a Pharisee. So there's your players. Look at verse 40. 
Verse 40 is going to give us the reaction of the crowd to what Jesus had said on the final day of the feast when he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And this was after a big feast and a seven days worth of a ceremony that had to do with pouring water into a specific bowl, very symbolic, drawn from the pool of Siloam. This is a promise of what God is going to do through a, a, a person and through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus basically says, all that is me. So you can expect uh, for him to be scrutinized by what he said. It's like saying, bomb on a plane. You can't be wrong. You have to be right. And if you're wrong, get rid of that guy. He's, 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 he's dangerous. But if he's right, he saved your life, right? So the people react. And if you count them, there are three different reactions. We've been over this uh, twice now. Some say the prophet, some say the Christ, some say he's a nobody, actually. He's neither one and should be arrested. Earlier in the book, in, in John's study, there were people who thought that John the Baptist might be the prophet. And we talked about why they would think that. It goes back to Deuteronomy 18. Moses prophesied that there would be a prophet like him, like unto Moses, that would come after and reveal a lot more about uh, God's word to them. So they've been looking for this guy. Well, these folks think that Jesus fits that. He might be the prophet. But then there's another group that think he's the Messiah. And uh, there are a whole host of passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that talk about a coming anointed one, a Messiah. And when we get closer to Christmas, we'll start going through passages like Isaiah. And then in Micah, where we find out where he's supposed to be born. All these prophecies that are foretelling the, the Messiah. So another group of people say, I think he fits that pretty good. Now here's where, <clears throat> excuse me, Christians moved by, removed by millennia, reading their Bibles in a church that believe that Jesus died. And we are very familiar with the Christmas story and the Easter story. Uh, the Christmas story has happened, but most of these people here in this passage missed it. And the Easter story hasn't happened at all. So when we see two groups of people that are disagreeing with each other, one says prophet, the other says Messiah, we scratch our heads and say, that's the same guy. Jesus fulfills both those. Well, in this case, they had a distinction between the two. And they're not as far down the tunnel of time as we are either. So they see it as two separate prophecies which could be two separate people we look at it and we think well good grief we see this clearly why don't you well that's a good thing to keep in mind that we don't think like them and they don't think like us and we need to keep that in front of our face as we try to understand exactly what's going on evidently some of them thought Jesus was a better fit with one as opposed to the other and still there was a third group of people who are unable to get past Jesus' background. But with more details than we've seen the others offer up, they've got a problem on their hands. They say, we know our Bibles, and the Messiah is supposed to come through the line of David, King David. And since David was born in Bethlehem, he should be born in Bethlehem. And there were passages of Scripture. These are the ones that we study during Christmas. 
So they have a point. But what's so sad about the whole thing is they're wrong. Because he was born in Bethlehem. He just happened to spend most of his life in Galilee. And because they knew him from Galilee, they're writing him off as, a non, as non-fitment. He can't fulfill this. And again, we look at this. It's confusing to us. We've known the Christmas story all our lives pretty much. We want to just say, don't you read your Christmas cards? <laughs> Haven't you ever sang, O little town in Bethlehem? But no, they don't send Christmas cards even now. Nor do they sing, O little town of Bethlehem. These are the people who, in short order, are going to crucify this man. They don't think he fits. We know that he fits, but they don't. So obviously there's a lot of assumptions being made about Jesus. And I think it'd probably be healthy for us to think through this from their perspective. Because they're being skeptic. And naturally so. And based on what they know of Jesus, they're working with what they've got. But they're still making those shallow decisions, those rash judgments, snap judgments, knee-jerk reactions that Jesus warned of earlier in the passage. Um, We've known each other, so many of us, for not even a year and a half yet. There's a whole group of people that I left in Virginia that knew me for about 30 years. A lot of people would think that I'm from Virginia. I'm not. I'm from Carolina. I was born in uh, Durham County General Hospital in 1978. And even though I've moved, I counted this up the other day, across the Virginia-Carolina border six times. From Hillsborough to Lynchburg, from Lynchburg to Charlotte, from Charlotte to Ringgold, from Ringgold to Leesburg, Leesburg back to Ringgold, from Ringgold to Fuquay Varina. Thirty-plus years were spent in Virginia. But I'm a Tar Heel. And any confusion, I'll politely correct. But for the people that know me, most folks would probably get that question wrong. Oh, he's a Virginian. And with Jesus, the people that didn't know him got this wrong. He spent most of his life in the Galilee region. Same as David spent most of his life in Jerusalem. But they were both born in Bethlehem. And if you're looking at the prophetic case as proof, that's what's going on here. John is using irony in writing this. That's why he doesn't correct the error. What John wants us to do when we read this is find the mistake and go, no, no, wait a minute. You're wrong here. Oh, it's it's ironic. You're throwing out as a disqualifier... Evidence that actually is part of the strongest case that he is the Messiah. And how often does that happen in our conversations with people who, who say, you know what? I, 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 no, I, I can't. And the very thing that they use to throw this out may be the, some of the very strongest of basis that is correct. But that's what's going on. So, in verse 43, there was a division among the people over Jesus. That's how he divided the group, at least in three ways. The whole city's divided. Some say one thing, others say something else, and there's no middle ground. 
because of what's involved. You can't say these things and be wrong and get away with it. That's why some would say he should be arrested. Some of them wanted to arrest him, verse 43 at the end, but no one laid hands on him because he's a big deal. It's not time yet. You can get on the wrong side of the riot and, and get hurt. So even the men who'd been sent to arrest him were probably sent to find a good time and place to do it. And we're going to see in verse 45 that that never materialized. But we've got to do something about it. Now as far as, before we move to verse 45, with verse 44 there in the middle, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one wanted to lay hands on him. And that's not quite as bad as what the authorities wanted to do. They want him dead. But how much difference is it between the officials who want to kill him and a group of people who think he's an imposter want him arrested? Is the, is the difference that one group wants him to suffer and the other group just wants him to go away? I'm not sure. But I think the vast majority of people are more like these folks that just think, no, that's not correct. He, he might have been a good teacher, but he's not for me. I wouldn't hang him on a cross. And I think if you polled the audience the world over, most of which who do not recognize Jesus as the Son of God, I doubt you'd have too many. Check the box. Crucify him. Kill him brutally with maximum suffering. I think most of them would be more like the others. Just tell him to go somewhere else. Because that's, that's basically the death Jesus dies in most people's lives. Uh, I think he's great. And if you like him, that's wonderful. And if I can find a good church to put my kids in, I'd like for them to grow up with some morals too. All that's good. But as far as Jesus calling the shots every day of my life uh, from the people I spend time with down to the way I spend my money, no, that, that, <laughs> that's a little too much. Jesus is great, but not like that. Um, if, if, if everyone had to go through their own lie detector this morning, boy, that'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> but just to think from inside the head of a pastor's kid who grew up with the whole church staring at him his whole life, I spent a lot of my life with no real use for Jesus. Well, I knew about him, and I hoped he'd take me to heaven when I died. I'd trusted him as Savior, as, to the best of my understanding. But there were certain things that when I could get away with them, nobody's paying attention, I'd do what I wanted to do. I don't need Jesus then, and that'd feel real bad later. But boy, don't we really feel the division when you're with other folks. And you've come to a point in your life where I do believe he has the right to call shots in my life. Whether I, I obey those shots or not, I'm not perfect. But I do feel like he has the authority to tell me what to do and tell me how to be saved. And if I get to go to heaven, it's based on his righteousness, not how good I am. And then you're close to somebody who sees that a little differently. Now, how dare you tell me how I should be raising my kids? Or this or that or whatever else. 
This is more than, than whose meatloaf recipe is better. Or which color jersey you wear. You know, people beat each other up over that. But they don't crucify one another over it. These are huge things. This is real division. We'll revisit that when we get to the end here with some points to take home. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why didn't you bring him in? Officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. Maybe you could fill in the blanks as far as the words they put the emphasis on. No one ever spoke like this man. Men don't talk like this. There's something else here. We don't know what it is, but that wasn't it. We couldn't. There's no, we started a riot. We couldn't arrest him. And we jumped ahead last week to see what happened to those guys because it was so interesting. Likely they couldn't find the appropriate time rather than you know, there was a force field they bounced off of. The whole thing wouldn't and couldn't happen because it's not Jesus' time yet. But their excuse, no one ever spoke like this man. And we stopped. We didn't read into verse 47, but there it gives us uh, an indication of how that was working for them. Pharisees send temple guards to get Jesus. Temple guards come back to Pharisees. Where's Jesus? Well, no one ever talked like this. How does that work for them? The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Well, that's the way to do it, right? Talk to them like they're idiots. Oh, you're with the crowd of dummies who believe that this guy's actually the Son of God, are you? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. That's 49. I skipped 48. Look at 48. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? So it's actually a three-round burst that they shoot these guys with. First of all, have you believed him? Second of all, have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed him? Answer, no. And then third, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. What do they mean by that? There's actually some in the Greek uh, a statement that these people used to use, the Pharisees and the rulers of Sanhedrin, to describe the people that weren't like them. Uh, the people of the land. And it was basically a way to describe the run-of-the-mill Jewish folks under the covenant, but that were too ignorant to have a real spiritual faith. Uh, in other words, the religious snobbishness of the Pharisees is on full display here. They do actually think they are much better than these other folks who don't obey the law, and they say they're cursed for it. And that's why they believe this upstart, this, this illegitimately born carpenter's son who thinks he's the son of God. That's why they believe. Are you one of them? We don't believe it. They're accursed. So this is very dramatic here. This is not cool for these guys who happen to be the temple guards. We're asking this rhetorical question, considering them to be so ignorant of the law that they're incapable of any intelligent faith. And then in the middle of all this, Nicodemus speaks up. And this is interesting. If this is laid out like some of these uh, shows that you watch on TV, right? When I was a kid, if somebody said uh, something about their show, well, those were soap operas, weren't they? You remember that? I got to go watch my shows. 
Soap operas were bad. I read an article the other day that all the soap operas are just about extinct now because the world is a soap opera. Uh, so, so there's, no, there's nothing to impress anybody with now. That uh, reality TV absolutely destroyed the soap opera. But now our shows are usually these streaming content providers like Netflix, something like that. And they'll put a whole episode or a whole series of episodes up at one time and people will watch the whole thing. Stay up all night watching them or something. But if you've been watching season after season and then you get to see a character that you haven't seen in a while, oh, something big's about to happen. So we're watching this story unfold and here's Nicodemus. He's the one that came in the middle of the night to talk to Jesus. Was that because he might take some heat for it? We don't know. We're speculating then. But we see him again. And it's interesting the way that John describes Nicodemus. Uh, he describes him as who had gone to him before. That's the night visit, chapter uh, 3. And who was one of them. Nicodemus is part of the Sanhedrin. He's a Pharisee. And what does he say? Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Again, we can't hear the tone, but I'm thinking, they're already mad. It's above normal volume. Outside voices are being used in the Sanhedrin meeting against the temple guards who didn't bring Jesus back. And then in all that shouting and red faces and veins and necks popping out, Nicodemus speaks. Isn't it custom with our law not to judge a man without a trial? A background check? Find out who he is, where he came from, what he's doing? Interesting where that's interjected. Because if you look at the last thing that they said, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So a group of people that doesn't know the law is a cursed group of people, right? Then Nicodemus says, Does our law, that's so important to you, require that we check a man out? So they had just cursed the whole crowd for being ignorant of the law. Nicodemus reminds them that they've been ignoring the law. I'd say the atmosphere got a little thicker with such a statement like that, right? Their reply, do they say, Nicodemus, you're right. We're sorry. We're hypocrites. We should forgive them. It's all right, temple guards. Try again next time. No. They say, are you from Galilee too? You must be one of those ignorant people from the same sticks that doesn't know anything. Search and see that no prophet arises in Galilee. And here is where I think it's just so unfortunate that the episode is over. Because they absolutely give Nicodemus a layup. What they basically tell him is, Nicodemus, go read your Bible. You'll find out that prophets don't come from Galilee. Except, of course, two did. Jonah and Nahum. So Nicodemus could have said, Jonah, Nahum, who, who needs to go read their Bibles? But he doesn't do that because these men are beside themselves angry. And when you're beside yourself angry, 
you throw a lot of that stuff in the trash. Nicodemus is playing chess, I believe. And what he's trying to do is buy some cover for Jesus, which I think he's closer to faith than anyone in this story. And maybe Joseph of Arimathea. We see them both later taking the body of Jesus after his crucifixion. The tone of the meeting, I think, should be considered to make sense of it. They try to win the moment by insinuating that Nicodemus needs to go back and read. They're wrong. He actually has a point. But he's quiet. He's playing chess. So what do we do with this? What's in this for me? Someone might ask. It's always good to try to answer that question as well. I think this passage is suggesting to us as believers, even 2,000 years later, that if we're going to follow Christ, perhaps as Nicodemus is very carefully considering, we should expect at least three things. And here's your three points. Number one, we should expect to live with division. That's going to be part of your following Jesus. The public was divided over Jesus in the passage we read. The authorities were divided. Would you say that the average public around the globe will just talk about the United States or North Carolina? When it comes time to vote, are we united or divided on things that have to do with faith? What about once we get done voting and they all go back to Washington? Are they united or are they divided on these type of things? They continue to be divided. Think of all that these people had in common, though. Uh, they, were, they had the same historical background. Their ancestors crossed the Red Sea out of Egypt with miracles and pillars of fire and very dramatic history of what God had done with his chosen people. You would think they'd be the most united people there were. Same geographic location. Same religion. Totally different sheets of paper. One man with a handful of claims. John laid out for us in chapter 1. This is what he's going to do. And he's divided the whole lot of them. You think it's true with us in our homes? Within our families? The older we get. I'm learning that. Have y'all learned that? When your kids, everything seems pretty even in the home. I mean, you fuss and some people get in trouble. Maybe you're in a house where spankings happened. That, that goes on. I'm, I'm 40 now, so it's a different world back then. But when you get older and you, you're an adult, you find out that not every Thanksgiving meal is as charming as you remember them when you were younger. And usually it can be going fine. One statement. One remember when. One I saw your Facebook and it all goes downhill because there's some division. And we're Christian folk in here. How often is it on a, on a, a line of morality that, that seems to explode from? Is it Christ's fault? He's the one that says the world hates me. If you follow me, it'll hate you too. He told his own brothers, y'all go to the feast. 
There's no problem with y'all down there. You're more like the world than you are like me. Is basically what he was saying. Expect to live with division. Don't ever expect to enjoy it, but expect to live with it. Number two, expect to pay the costs. This is where we could use Nicodemus as the closest one to faith in the story here and the costs that were racking up with him. Perhaps this is why he went to Jesus in the middle of the night. Why he seems to be playing chess in a heated argument. Have you paid costs? Certain, we could just go through the list. Promotions, but you got to be cool with this or that. I don't think that's honest. Well, uh, maybe you're not the guy for the job. Or relationships that just seem to part ways at a certain time. Or people that you love dearly. But that, again, to go back to a previous point, to say that they are convinced that Christ has the authority to call the shots in this life and in eternity, that he's actually God's son and what he says is actually true, and that if you're going to be saved and spend eternity in heaven, it's going to be by his righteousness, appropriated by your faith. Either you believe or you don't. And if you don't believe it, it's probably because that is offensive. Right? You can't have two people, even if they're in the same family, on the same page if one thinks, I get to heaven by the sinless life of a Jewish carpenter and another person who says, I think that's a fairy tale. And the two of you look at each other and say, I'm happy with that if you're happy with that. It just doesn't work. There are costs involved. And then number three, you can expect to notice a pattern. And the pattern that I see between these two groups and those who believe and those who don't believe, and you could back this up all the way into chapter 2 of John, and all the, the, the pivot point between those who believe and those who don't believe seem to be gathering around a pattern. Those who accept Jesus do so on account of His words. And we could go back and rehearse. I don't think we need to. But uh, verse 17 in chapter 7. If you've got 7 open. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will. He will know whether the teaching is from God. Or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If you're really searching for God. You'll hear his voice in my teaching. If not it'll sound like a joke. There's verse 46. The officer said, what? No one ever spoke like this guy. He's different. It has to do with his speech, his words. Now, those that reject Jesus, it's usually on account of what they perceive as a scandal. Now, he's from Galilee. I went to trade school with that guy. We played in the dirt together when we were kids. He can't be... God's son, he's just like anybody else. Uh, not to take away from chapter 8, but they're going to bring out the big guns later. They're going to refer to him as an illegitimately born. Someone just like everybody else. That's in 742 and 52, we see that. And then 841 is where they insult him that way. And again, the irony. 
He's illegitimately born according to your understanding because he was born of a virgin. Another one of those things that could turn the Thanksgiving conversation on its head. <laughs> you believe what? Yeah, I believe that Jesus was born immaculately. Expect and notice a pattern. I think it's convenient, this message and the songs today, they just seem to be geared towards someone who might need some encouragement. Um, because life is tough enough, and life as a Christian is even tougher, and especially holidays. America has no problem with Christmas. They like it. It makes people a lot of money, and it gives people time to get together. Thanksgiving, the same thing. A lot of people are thankful. It just gets kind of weird when you want to say, to whom for what? Because we believe it all comes from God. They believe, I guess, it's all crapshoot. I got lucky, so I'm thankful for it. They're happy to do that because there's nothing offensive about that. Most of Christmas has been sanitized of all this. But in your homes where you sit down and meet, this might come up. And this passage may be of great help. Because you know that you should expect division, you should expect cost, and you should notice a pattern. Because there comes the tension, the part of this arrangement that comes along with being a Christian that nobody finds enjoyable, maybe even excruciating. And that's trying to explain away those scandals. Well, I just don't understand why these people can't do what they want to do. Well, I can show you in the scriptures. It doesn't make it any more comfortable, does it? The division is still there. There are still those who believe and those who don't. And at the end of the day, you're going to need to keep praying for your loved ones, keep telling people, kindly about Jesus and what he's done for your life show them the living water show them the bread of life keep inviting them to come and see because there's something in this story that should convince you that it'll be alright at the end of the day there was a man who never spoke like any of these other guys. No one ever spoke like this. Something about him. It's because he's not man, he's God. You will never have the ability to change anyone's mind in this regard. The mind that is changed is always a gift of God. The spark of faith is given as a gift. If I thought that my job was to convince people to become Christians, I'd go buy a boat and be a charter fisherman. I think I'd do better finding fish for people to catch. I can't convince you. I can just tell you the truth. Tell you, tell you what's in the scriptures. But the words came from a man who didn't speak like anybody else. That's what you've got in your back pocket. No one ever spoke like this man. The men at the, uh, at the end, on the way to Emmaus, you remember them? 
Didn't our hearts burn within us when he took the books we'd known since we were babies and put them all together and it made sense? How does someone come to faith in Jesus Christ? By the miraculous work of God in heaven. You tell the story. Let him do the work of saving and convincing. But expect division. Expect to pay cost. And expect to see a pattern. So instead of worrying so much about the scandals, just tell them the truth in Scripture. I find it interesting in this story that Jesus never said, you want to see my birth certificate? (laughs) He didn't bring that up. He just kept preaching. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask for you to help us believe even helping our unbelief. We're natural skeptics. But your story makes sense and requires faith. It's a reach for most of us Americans to believe these things that are fantastic. But Lord, you can't say them if it's a lie and get away with it. But if they're true, they save our lives. Lord, give us the words to tell others, help us to be kind, help us to focus more on love if truth isn't getting across. Help us to consider you, keep you in our mind as we negotiate our holidays together. May we look at them as a gift from you, time spent together with those that we love. And may we be an ambassador of the loving truth of God We thank you for these truths. May they encourage us. We ask this in your name. Amen.